Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel and chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to uh, use one of the ones we've provided for you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning on uh, page 737 in uh, those Bibles. A few Sundays ago, uh, we were talking uh, on a Sunday evening about using our Bibles properly and particularly how to interpret the Bible properly. And we mentioned that there are some passages in the Bible where people know the story but often miss the point. And the classic example that we gave was that of the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Most Christians uh, at least have a cursory knowledge Uh, of that parable and yet often they miss the point of what the parable is actually about Uh, you see in Luke 15 where we find the parable of the prodigal son this chapter begins by telling us that sinners and tax collectors were gathering around to hear Jesus and we're told that the Pharisees and the religious teachers were muttering to themselves this man welcomes sinners And eats with them. And so that's the context of the parable of the prodigal son. And it turns out that that parable is not about the prodigal son at all. It's about the elder brother. Uh, The prodigal son was cruel to his father, left his father, wasted his inheritance, lived in debauchery, and found himself living in the muck. Then he comes to his senses, and when he comes back to his father, he is received with open arms. Indeed, the father runs to him when he sees him, and a party is thrown. But the elder brother is angry because the father was willing to welcome back such a son who had treated the family so badly. You see, these Pharisees and these religious leaders were like Jonah when Jonah was bitter with God because he was willing to forgive the Ninevites. The parable of the prodigal son should probably be called the parable of the elder brother. It's actually one of three parables in a row that all have the same basic message, namely that we should join with God We should join with the angels in heaven in rejoicing at the mercy of God at being willing to reach sinners who have sunk so low. It is a wondrous thing when a sinner is saved and it is wicked to begrudge God's grace. Well, this morning, we come to another passage that is often known by Christians, at least in a cursory way, But often the point is missed. In fact, often this passage is used in ways that actually miss the point of the passage. And so our desire this morning is that God will help us to rightly understand what he is telling us in this account. We've been working our way a bit slowly through Daniel chapter 1, but now we're going to pick up the pace a bit, and we're going to look today at verses 8 through 16. So, uh, type A, personality, note takers, here is our outline. Daniel's resolution, Daniel's courage, Daniel's confidence, 
And finally, Daniel's God. So Daniel's resolution, Daniel's courage, Daniel's confidence, and Daniel's God. And just so you will know, up front, we are going to spend almost all of our time on the first point. Okay, so don't get worried when that's over. Almost all of our time on the first point. The others will come much more quickly. Let's look first at verse 8. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Okay, so let's, let's remember what's going on. Uh, Daniel and his three friends are part of a whole group of exiles who were forcibly taken from their home in Jerusalem and are now being made servants of the king in Babylon. Uh, these are teenage boys. They are being given a free Babylonian education. They are being given the king's food. And yet we learn here that Daniel has resolved not to defile himself in this way. That is, by partaking of the king's food and wine. And that raises the critical question. What was wrong with this food? What was wrong with this wine? Why would eating this food and drinking this wine defile Daniel and his friends? And here is where some have misappropriated this passage and gone off the rails. They have assumed that the problem with the food is that it was meat. And the problem with the drink is that it was wine. Uh, Some have taken this passage as a call for Christians to embrace vegetarianism. Uh, Others have seen in this passage a call for Christians to abstain from all wine. They say Daniel realized that meat and wine are bad for you. And because of his health consciousness, he could not partake. So one book that I glanced at in Lifeway the other day put it succinctly. The author said, Daniel knew what was healthy to eat. And he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And so that's how some read this passage. The point of the passage is that some food and drink is bad for you, meat and wine. And if you care about your health, if you care about not defiling your body, you will pursue vegetarianism, you will pursue abstinence from all alcohol. Now, others have not gone quite so far, but they have seen in this passage a call for Christians to at least imitate Daniel in his vegetarian diet. Or they've used this passage in the book of Daniel as a whole to create dietary plans and to call God's people to certain eating habits. In fact, when I visited Lifeway uh, just a few days ago, I went to see what kind of books they would have on their shelf about what is called the, the Daniel diet. And I assumed that they might have a couple of books on the subject of the Daniel diet. But I was quite surprised. I found The Daniel Fast by Susan Gregory. And then I guess that book had led to spinoffs because beside it was The Daniel Fast for Weight Loss, a biblical approach to losing weight and keeping it off. 
Did you know there was a biblical approach to losing weight and keeping it off? And it's, and it's in Daniel. Uh, there was the ultimate guide to the Daniel fast, uh, including more than 100 recipes and 21 daily devotionals. There was the Daniel detox, 21 days to revitalize your body and spirit. There was the Daniel plan, 40 days to a healthier life. There was the Daniel plan jumpstart guide. There was the Daniel plan 365-day devotional. There was the Daniel Plan Journal, and on and on. It appears that an entire market has sprung up around this idea that the book of Daniel, and particularly Daniel chapter 1, holds the key to how you can eat healthier. Now, as I was sharing with one of our church members this morning, just don't tell Jesus because he was the one that the Pharisees called a drunkard and a glutton because of how much time he spent feasting with people in their homes. And I don't think Jesus was called a drunken and a glutton, a drunkard and a glutton, because he was filling up on too much water or eating too much salad. And so let me be very clear. I do not doubt that the authors of such books were well-intentioned. And based on my own eating habits, I know that I should be slow to judge anyone on anything they are doing to try and eat healthier. And in just a few Sunday nights, we're going to spend a whole Sunday night message on what does the Bible say about how Christians should think about food. But I also want to be clear about this. Daniel 1 is not about a diet. That is not the purpose of this text. In fact, Daniel's problem with the meat and the wine actually has nothing to do with the meat and the wine itself. You say, Justin, how do you know that? Well, first, we know it because later in Daniel, we are going to find him eating the king's meat and drinking wine with a clear conscience and no objections. Later, when we get to Daniel chapter 10, we will find Daniel put away uh, meat and wine for three weeks in order to fast and seek the Lord. But the fact that he explicitly tells us that he put those away for three weeks tells us that he was eating and drinking those things before his fast. Some have suggested then that the problem here was that the meat being offered to Daniel was not kosher. That is, that the king's meat violated Old Testament regulations about which kinds of meat Jews could eat. So maybe Daniel was being offered pork, for example. The problem with that argument is that the Old Testament prophets had already declared that keeping the Jewish dietary laws while in exile was going to be impossible. And besides, this argument doesn't explain why Daniel and his friends refused the wine because wine is not prohibited by the Old Testament dietary laws. Nor does this argument explain why they were later able to eat the king's meat and to drink the king's wine. Others have suggested that the reason for them partaking, that this would have defiled them, the problem here was that the meat and the wine were being offered to pagan idols first. And this was a common practice in pagan nations. Uh, In the New Testament, all kinds of questions come up about whether or not followers of Jesus 
should eat meat that comes from pagan sacrifices. But here's the thing. The Babylonians didn't just offer their meat and wine to their idols before they themselves ate and drank. They also offered their vegetables. In other words, they offered their full meals to the idols before they ate and drank them themselves. And so the vegetarian diet that Daniel and his friends go on would not have solved that problem. So again, the issue here is not the meat. The issue here is not the wine. What is the issue? Well, in my understanding, I think the passage tells us again and again, the problem wasn't the food. It's whose food it was. Uh, Look back at verse 5. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now look again at verse 8. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So if there is any emphasis in these verses to help us understand the problem, it appears to be this, that it was the king's food, that it was the king's drink. And I can't help but wonder if Daniel might have been remembering his Proverbs. Because what did wise Solomon teach in Proverbs 23? When you sit down to eat with a ruler... Observe carefully what is set before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. They are deceptive food, the king's delicacies. Then later in Proverbs 23, Solomon says, Do not eat the bread of a man whose eye is evil. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you, and you will vomit up the morsels you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. We, gave, we have already seen that King Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to indoctrinate these boys. We've already seen that Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to win them over to the Babylonian worldview and the Babylonian way of life. But more than anything, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to win these boys over to himself. For if there are thousands of Jews who are going to come later to Babylon, and if they find that their most notable and esteemed young men are now devoted servants of Nebuchadnezzar, willing to do his will, whatever it is, well, that would suit Nebuchadnezzar's purposes very well. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is giving these young men the food and the wine from his own table to get at their hearts. It's a bribe. This is not the kind of meat and wine you would have found on the tables in the homes of your typical Judahites or your typical Babylonians. This was the king's delicacies, and it was an attempt to win the hearts of these young men to him by spoiling them with the best meat and wine the ancient world had. In the ancient Near East, food was about so much more than just food. If you remember our study of Joseph in Genesis, you might remember that the Egyptians would never sit at the same table with Hebrews. 
Uh, There was a reason why the Pharisees despised Jesus for breaking bread with prostitutes and tax collectors. To share food with someone in the ancient world was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of peace. It was a sign of camaraderie. And even if Nebuchadnezzar wasn't right there eating and drinking with these young men, and I doubt he was, them partaking of his rich foods, them partaking of his finest wines from his table would have been a sign of allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar that would have compromised Daniel's allegiance to his own God. You cannot serve God when you are in someone else's pocket. So you see, sometimes meat and wine is so much more than meat and wine. And sometimes a slice of cake is so much more than a slice of cake. Uh, One of our church members was sharing recently how the company where he works tried to get the employees to celebrate Pride Week. Numerous emails were sent out to the employees telling them that the company was purchasing a large cake for the break room so that the employees could show their support for their gay or lesbian co-workers. According to this church member, despite the best efforts of the company and despite a really large cake that was purchased, very few people from the company actually went to the break room and got a slice of the cake. Why? Because taking a slice of that cake said something. It said that you endorsed. It said that you celebrated homosexuality as an appropriate and good lifestyle. Partaking of the cake was more than just eating cake. It sent a message. And a follower of Jesus could not in clean conscience eat of that cake without doing damage to his witness and his allegiance to Christ. I told you I was going to spend a lot of time on this first point. That's because I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been thinking about other occasions when eating food means something more significant than just eating food. We're going to do it next Sunday, aren't we? When we take the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's table. When Jesus sets before us the bread and the cup, he is extending more than just a snack to us. He is extending his friendship to us. Jesus is extending his love and his peace to us as he invites us to his table. And though we eat a little bread and though we drink the cup, it isn't really about those things. It's about what they mean. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we are declaring that our allegiance, our friendship is with Christ. We are declaring that we are with him and on his side. We are drawing a line in the sand. And because of what Christ has done for us and giving of his body and his blood, bearing God's wrath for us in our place, saving us from hell, we are coming to his table and declaring that we are his forever. Come what may, our allegiance is with Jesus. So this is one reason we take the Lord's Supper, to declare our allegiance to Christ. And at least as far as I can tell, I think this is why Daniel and his friends could not eat of King Nebuchadnezzar's meat and drink of his wine. And Daniel was resolved. Do you see that in verse 8? Resolved. Matthew Henry says they had changed his name, but they could not change his nature. 
the word resolved in Hebrew literally means to set something in its place, to settle something, to, to put it down. Uh, in this case, Daniel has set something in his heart the way concrete sets as it dries. Uh, Daniel has a settled purpose, and that purpose is that he will not defile himself. He may be in Babylon, but he will not participate in her sins. Uh, The King James says Daniel purposed in his heart. The New American Standard says Daniel made up his mind. He would not allow himself to be defiled, polluted, stained in this way. Mount Hermon, I would simply ask you, are you resolved this morning to walk in purity before your God? Is that a settled thing for you? Have you settled it like concrete in your mind and in your heart that you would rather be struck through with a knife than commit the least sin against the God who is committed to you and loves you so? Do you have a holy tenacity? Is there a warrior in you ready to stand against temptations, ready to hold firm in your obedience to Christ no matter how hard the pull is to do otherwise? Are you resolved? Daniel knew his God. And it was his love and his devotion to God that trumped the temptations. It was his love and devotion to God that helped him eat his Brussels sprouts while everybody else was eating filet mignon. The others had better tasting food. Daniel had a clean conscience before his God. And that was more valuable to his soul. How highly do you value a clean conscience before God? How important to you is a clean conscience before God? Maybe you're thinking it's too late for me. Maybe you're thinking I'm I'm already so tainted. I'm already so defiled. I'm already so stained. I've already given my allegiance to this world. I have already been impure in so many ways. I've already rejected God in so many ways. Justin, I don't have a clean conscience before God. I have a filthy conscience. I have a broken conscience. I have a conscience that just tells me again and again how messed up and dirty I am. Well, friend, if that's you, I have some good news. You are the reason Jesus came to earth. Jesus did not come to call the righteous to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners. He came so that all who will hate their sins and run to him will find that he is able to wipe away all their filthiness. Our Jesus is a forgiver of sins. Our Jesus is a cleanser of consciences. If you had a whiteboard that stretched from here to Raleigh and all of your sins were written there, you would find that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to completely erase every single one of those sins. When we believe on Christ, all that we've ever said, thought, or done that was wicked is wiped away and your conscience cannot justly accuse you any longer. 
because you have been accepted as blameless in the sight of God himself, and he is the highest judge. Jesus paid the punishment for all your sins if you believe on him. God loves you. Christ loves you. And you can start over with a new life and a clean conscience before God if you will simply choose to hate your past life, hate your sins, hate the wicked things you've said and done, and run to Jesus that his blood will make you clean. Now, certainly you will still fall down sometimes. And Daniel wasn't perfect either. But when we trust Daniel's God, we find that he forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it's in the joy of that good news, it is overwhelmed by such love as that, that we are able to stand firm and be resolved. No one loves us like God loves us. And when we understand that, we would rather die than knowingly turn our backs on him. The true Christian grieves when he or she has sinned. The true Christian mourns that they would turn their back on the God who has done so much for them. The true Christian then embraces fresh mercy given to us in Jesus and we get back on our feet and with consciences made clean by the blood of Christ, we move forward in seeking to be resolved. Standing on the gospel of grace, we are resolved that we will not disobey our God. Mount Hermon, we live in a day when we're going to need resolution. Are you resolved? All right, Daniel's courage. Number two, Daniel's courage. Very quickly, look at what Daniel actually does in verses 8 through 13. So beginning in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So in these verses, we see Daniel's courage in that he, as a captured servant, approaches the head man. He approaches the chief of the eunuchs. And there is no sign here that Daniel was disrespectful. There's no sign here that Daniel was unkind, but he brings his request to the chief. Now, the chief is under the authority of the king, and because of that, he fears that if these boys begin to lag behind the others in their physicality, he's going to be held liable. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of this man. And so this man really does sympathize with Daniel. He, he isn't angry with Daniel for making this request. But rather, he finds himself in a tough place. 
the chief is unable to say yes to Daniel because what it could cost him if Nebuchadnezzar is displeased. And so at this point, Daniel could have said, all right, God, I tried. I gave it my best shot. And the answer was no. I guess it's steak and Cabernet tonight. But that's not what we see here. Daniel's resolve and his courage is steadfast. Since the chief was in a position where he could not say yes, perhaps someone under the chief would be in a better position. And so Daniel goes to the steward, who is directly responsible for Daniel and his friends. And here he finds someone who is better able to grant his request. Uh, Friends, sometimes it may be hard to do what is necessary to be obedient to God. Sometimes doing the right thing means awkward conversations. Sometimes doing the right things means being strategic about how to best approach the subject. In, in, In pursuing obedience to God, we need to be as shrewd as serpents, but always innocent as doves. And we need to have the courage to do whatever it takes to stay faithful to him who was ever faithful to us. So that's Daniel's courage. Now notice Daniel's confidence. Daniel's confidence. And we see his confidence in the proposal that he makes to the steward. So look at verses 12 and 13 again. Verses 12 and 13. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, note Daniel's confidence here, and I simply want to ask this question. What is his confidence in? I mean, he's willing to take on this challenge. Ten days. See which one of the men is, or, 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 or has, has benefited most in their 10 days of diet. What is his confidence in as he makes this proposal? I want to suggest to you that his confidence is not in the superiority of vegetables. His faith here is not in the power of water and vegetables to make him and his friends stronger than those who are eating steak. That, that is not where his confidence is found. Daniel is casting himself here on the power of God. Daniel is stepping out on faith, putting his trust in God, believing that God will be faithful to make a way for him and his friends to not have to sin. Mount Hermon, here is a truth we need to always remember. God will never put you in a situation where you have to sin. Never. Though difficult temptations may be placed upon you, he will always make sure there is a way for you to remain faithful. There will always be a way for you to remain obedient in the midst of the trial. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, sometimes that way of escape may not be obvious. Sometimes it will require prayer, asking God to show us the way out. Sometimes, like here, it will require us stepping out on faith, asking God to clear a path for us of obedience. But God is faithful. 
and he will honor your efforts to be holy. It brings God joy. <laughs> it, it thrills the divine soul of God to see his children working, fighting, striving to be good and righteous and blameless. Parents, doesn't it thrill you when you see your children sometimes have to actually work to do the right thing? When you see that they sacrifice to do the right thing? Oh, how that thrills the heart of God. And it is his pleasure to honor our efforts when we do so. Now, it is a dangerous thing to put God to the test. And so it's very possible that God had spoken to Daniel before this. Uh, Maybe somehow God had revealed to Daniel that he wanted this 10-day test to be proposed. Or it is possible that Daniel had prayed, and as he approached the steward, the Holy Spirit gave Daniel a a piece about proposing this test. I don't think Daniel's being presumptuous here. I think he had some legitimate assurance from God that this was the right way to approach this situation. And so also we should seek a peace in our hearts and in our minds when confronted with difficult circumstances. What would God have me do? And we need to be fully convinced in our minds and we need to be convinced by God's Spirit speaking through God's Word. But then, with our conviction settled, we ought to step out in courage just like Daniel. And we ought to strive for that which is right. So we've seen his courage, we've seen his confidence. Now note what happened as we look at Daniel's God. Beginning in verse 14. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now friends, this brings us to uh, the most important point of the passage, namely what God does. It was not the vegetables, it was not the water that made these youths appear fatter in flesh than the other youths who had ate steak and drank wine. This was a working of Almighty God. This was God acting supernaturally to protect these young men, to make a way for them to keep having a clean conscience before Him and to remain loyal to Him. Did you notice that it was God who gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chief eunuch. It was God who caused the steward to listen to Daniel and to consider his proposal. And now it is God who makes a way for these young men to remain blameless. We can learn a lot about Daniel from this passage, but this passage is not mainly about Daniel. It is about his God. It is about the supremacy of God even over the courts of Babylon. It is about the supremacy of God over human health and human choices and human authority figures. This passage is about the sovereignty of God. It's about His mighty right hand and how He turns the hearts of a human being wherever He desires. This passage is about God's commitment to His children. And how he works in all things to care for them and to honor them and to be faithful to them. Mount Hermon, there are some good fathers out there, but there has never been a father so loyal 
and so lovingly devoted to the welfare of his children than this father. So forget the superiority of vegetables. This passage is about the superiority of God. So here is my closing application this morning. Unbelievers, run to Christ for salvation. He is the one who can take away your sins. He is the one who can give you a clean conscience before God. And believers, trust in your heavenly Father. And by standing in your confidence in Him, resolve to be holy. And be courageous and be confident. Do not be confident in yourself Instead, let your confidence be in the awesome, almighty, compassionate God who has made you his child and who has devoted himself to your eternal welfare. As a Christian, you are in safe hands. And so as you seek to walk with God and be faithful to him, you can be sure that his faithfulness to you will always outlast yours to him. He is committed to you for all time and in every way. So take heart and let us trust Daniel's God and resolve to be holy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.